Hi everyone, I'm Sophia, the founder of Vona and a host of this podcast, Vona Talks. Vona is a consultancy and education platform with a focus on climate, gender, security, and intersection between them. In this podcast, we bring unique and underrepresented as well as more known voices of diverse experts, activists, and storytellers. Today at Wanna Talks, I'm hosting our first guest, Angela Love. What an amazing surname. Angela, how would you introduce yourself with two, three sentences for our listeners to understand who and what you are? Thank you, Sophia. First of all, hello, everybody who's listening. Um, it's wonderful and it's an absolute honor and pleasure to be with Sophia on, as her first guest on this amazing podcast. I'm very honored and very happy uh, to share uh, my insights. So I would simply say, like you, like you said, my name is Angela. I'm from the Seychelles Islands. I've been living in Belgium for over a decade now, and I describe myself as a social impact enthusiast. So anything to do with diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, that's right up my alley. Since we want to do this podcast more as a storytelling and not just like Brussels type of introduction of your titles and where you come from, where do you work and that's it. Could we maybe start a little bit from your story? Because as you just mentioned, you're from the Seychelles. I have never met someone from the Seychelles. So you're the first person coming from, <laughs> from that place, at least in my network and also in Brussels from, from everyone I know. So could you tell us more a bit about your childhood, what brought you to Brussels and what made you do what you do today? Absolutely. I like to describe myself as a rarity. And I mean, when I first moved to Brussels, Every time I was introducing myself, somebody would ask me, oh my, I'm so sorry, where is the Seychelles? So um, I, I'm, I'm glad that a few years later now, many people are just sort of like awed by the fact that I'm from the Seychelles and not asking me, where is that? So there's been change in that. But yes, I, I come from... A, tiny cluster, an archipelago of 115 islands in the Indian Ocean, just below Madagascar, quite south of India. I was raised in a single parent household with three amazing women. So my biological mother, um, Jalene Lau, my grandmother, Eileen Eliza King, and my aunt, Lucy King Gomez. And I feel, you know, privilege talking about these three women uh, on, 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 your, on here. And it's important for me to even say their names. So unfortunately, last year I lost my grandma and my aunt quite tragically, quite suddenly in the space of a, of a month. So it's, uh, it's a little hard talking about it today. But, you know, if I'm here, it's, it's in part because of those three amazing women. And I didn't know it then, but I know it now that my journey and where I am today was very much forged by their journeys. So it's a privilege to be here talking about this. Um, I also have a younger sibling, um, a brother called Ryan, and he's the only man in the family because at 14, we, I, I lost my grandfather, who was the sort of like the head of the family and probably the best man I've known to date. Um, my journey to Brussels, to be quite honest, um, Brussels was never on my radar. I had completely other plans in my mind. I was going to go to the UK. I was studying there and that was the aim. Um, but then, you know, 
long story short, uh, a combination of choosing the wrong subjects at school in my A-levels, thinking I was going to be a doctor and failing miserably at physics and math in my A-levels. And also, you know, coming from a small island, while I was privileged to go to the best private school on the island, and that's why, you know, I, I all my, all my certifications, all my studies was done with the British system. So IGCSEs, A-levels, um, university was a different story as a, as a non-European um, and from a, an island as small as the Seychelles and also from a single parent uh, family household. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of far-fetched just because financially um, it was a big, big uh, endeavor. And at the time when I was graduating in preparation for high school, the country was through going through an economic recession and our exchange rate had taken a dive. So, you know, even like anticipating 10K a year was humongous. But again, going back to the fantastic women I was raised by, the idea was that I was going to go to university. I was going to be the first in our immediate family to go to university. And it was important for them to get me there. I was quite happy staying in the Seychelles. I'd gotten a great job um, at Barclays Bank, taking care of all the wonderful like offshore customers. You know, as, a, as an 18 year old, I was making my own money. I was working in a bank. I was like, it's okay. And my mom was like, no, like I did not work this hard to get you into the best school. You did not work that hard to get all those grades and all those accolades for you to just stop. You have more to your journey. This is not where you end. And so then it was like, okay, where can we find affordable um, schooling? And somehow, somewhere ended up in Belgium where my mom had a cousin uh, who's lived here almost 40 years and Belgium became the stop where, you know, I finished my bachelor and did my master's and postgrad here. So it wasn't a direct, uh, you know, a direct line to Brussels. Brussels was kind of thrusted upon me and it's, it's, it's been an amazing surprise thus far. Now I'm going to get emotional. I also <laughs> come from a family of a very powerful mother who helped me to go through so many things in life. And it's just so, I mean... In a way, how lucky we are in yeah. those situations when it feels like the whole world is against you. You always have this one person who is there and like, even if you do not see what will be the next step, they're, they're supporting us. And uh, I think it's amazing. It's huge, really. And it's, it's sometimes it's sort of scary to think like, you know, if I ever become a mother, can I be that sort of selfless? It's it's hard to like. I always tell my mom like, if I'm a fraction of the woman you are, I'd be the best human being ever. And I know it's probably cheesy. And a lot of people say that, but I don't know anyone as selfless as my mother and as those three women who you know. For them, it was we put you and your brother first, and what we didn't get, you will get. And so I will forever be indebted with them in a way that I will, I will never be able to repay fully. So yeah, I, 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 we understand each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can repay or try to repay to your kids as well. And I think that will be, and you already repay to the world. I mean, with, with all respect, I'm sure your mom is so proud of where you are today and with everything what you're doing. And that's exactly what we will be talking next. Um, so can you tell us a bit 
about your current job in Brussels, um, which I think is one of the most interesting ones. But I'm, of course, biased as a person doing gender equality and being a gender expert. So just tell me more about your organization and your day-to-day work. And um, yeah, certainly. So I work for Women Political Leaders, which is a international nonpartisan network um, of women in political positions. Currently, it uh, counts about 10,000 women political leaders in its network. And the main aim and mission of WPL is to increase the number of women in politics, but also increase their influence and power. And so the network um, does that in many different ways um, through convenings where it creates sort of a platform for women in, 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 in parliaments, women mayors, women cabinet ministers, women heads of state or government to come and first of all, create that community to share and exchange on, you know, where they are, what are the barriers that they're facing, but also more importantly, to have kind of an exchange of best practices, uh, best practice of insights and knowledge on how to advance society. Because in the end, it's about creating impact and how can women in decision-making positions create such an impact. Also, another important part of, you know, what I do and what I, I uh, the work that we do at, at WPL is to also um, generate and highlight data because you can't really be what you can't see. So, you know, being able to um, create but also to highlight evidence of how when women are in politics, change is made from a policy legislation level. That's very important. So we have many different studies that we're doing. So one of the studies that WPL will be launching in September is a global study um, called Representation Matter, uh, which is the first study of its kind to showcase uh, the influence of women politicians on legislation. The study is conducted with WPL, uh, the Korea University, and the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. And Its aim is to show that a country's overall progress and performance is really improved when it has greater women representation in political leadership through their role in the law and policymaking process. So the ambition is to start by showing causality with the the realm in the realm of economic legislation and in the future build up to showcasing other policy areas such as peace and security, climate action, corruption and education. And the main aim, I think, of what constitutes WPL's core work is to show that, you know, representation in politics matters. It matters to it matters that women are in politics because half the world is made up of women. So if we do not have women's participation, women's decision making at the levels where you know laws and regulations are being made that impact global society, we can never really achieve global um, gender equality for all. And the idea of fulfilling, you know, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, is very far-fetched. And so in, in that aspect, what WPL tries to do is to advocate that, you know, we need more women at decision-making tables because it just makes sense. 
And so that's kind of the work that we do, working with politicians in terms of advocacy work, in terms of convenings, but also in terms of creating data knowledge to back um, that belief. I think data knowledge is indeed very, very important. I myself worked on one of the projects called Security, which I'm sure you're aware of, and you probably very much cooperated with us as well. It also was basically on collecting data on how many women we have out there because, and it seems very basic. And I think that it is because representation is just the first step towards gender equality. But even there, we we do not have data. I mean, we both probably read the book Invisible Women, yes. which is just the, the start of conversation of the fact that how much lack of data we have out there and how much this world was built for men in a way. I mean, the figures, the figures are, are shocking. The most recent, um, you know, figures in terms of politics uh, um, surveyed by UN Women is that 26.5 women, 26.5% uh, sorry, of women are in parliaments globally. Only 26.5% of women in parliaments. That's, that's, that's shocking. Another shocking uh, figure was like, you know, 22.8% uh, of women uh, govern ministers. So that means that only one in four, or actually less than one in four cabinet ministers around the world are women. And usually if they are women, they're, you know, heading portfolios to do with gender equality, human rights and social protection, which are important. But you always have the men in, in charge of the bigger portfolios or the more impact, what, what is seen as the more impactful portfolios, e economy, foreign affairs, defense. And um, what, what for me was particularly shocking, I think, I think is understanding that, you know, gender parity in politics won't be reached for at least another 100 years. And for that, that's a whole century. And so, you know, the figures are shocking. I think COVID uh, exasperated and kind of, you know, ate away at any progress that was being made. And it's, 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 it's vital uh, to be in the sphere that we are in now. And I think looking forward to the elections, and we talk about the e uh, European elections next year, it's, it's very important to make the point that, you know, women deserve a place at the table and women deserve to hold positions of power and leadership. So it's, it, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud to be kind of part of, of this mission and to work with amazing women leaders across different echelons of political, you know, power and leadership to, to effect that change um, in, in, in my humble uh, capacity. Nice, nice. I mean, one tricky specifying question, and I, I just had another discussion recently on the same topic. Do quotas work and do we need quotas? Oof. That is a question that I've myself pondered on many times. I think, and for me, I think what's important in terms of representation is yes, getting more women in politics. It's yes, getting women to stay in politics, but it's also about getting the right women into politics. So I think in some cases, I think, you know, there are many examples of where um, um, quotas have worked 
because of just, you know, the setup of the system, be it in political parties, where a lot of the time, you know, even in, within political parties, there's a lot of gatekeeping, which affects women's participation in politics. This is one of the findings in one of our studies that we did with the Global Institute of Leadership at King's College, where it's like, you know, women just don't get through the door to begin with. And so in certain aspects, I think, you know, quotas are important, but I'm also of the thinking that it needs to be, it, it can't just be, we have quotas just as a nice to have, there needs to be a follow through with it. And there needs to be, you know, the right women for those positions. So I think when quotas are necessary, quotas are the starting point, but they're not the end all solve all. That would be my, uh, my, my opinion on, 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 on the subject. I know it's a very debated um, topic, but for me, that's, you know, working in the sphere for almost seven years now and what I've seen concretely works is that quotas are a starting point, but they're not the, they're not the final solution. And what needs to happen is more systemic change um, in making sure that, you know, women in po political participation of women is just a reality and not a nice to have. And then one day we'll reach the point where we won't have quotas because it'll just be, you know, a given that a woman or a man can join politics, can be at the same level, can run in the same spheres, and it won't be an, an issue. I hope so. I mean, I'm surely not ready to wait for 100 years. So I, I do hope there will be some changes that will come in that will make it a little bit faster and we will move faster than we used to for the past decades. Um, and maybe the last question about your work, and then I want to get back to you as well, because I know you have some personal projects that are growing on your background and with everything else that you are doing. How does it feel to work with high-level women? Because, I mean, we have very diverse listeners out there and there might be some young people listening as well. And I have been just one myself. I mean, I still consider myself young, but not to the same extent as I used to be just a few years ago when I was just inspired when I would see any young woman out there. And I was like, wow, you made it. And like, how does it feel to work with them? And also maybe if you could share a bit, like what is something that connects them all? Because as you said, you work with women from different geographical areas, ethnic backgrounds, and um, yeah, from, from different areas of the world at different levels. So to what extent they have something in common or are they just completely diverse? And that's also the beauty of it. So, yeah, I think I, I've had immense privilege of working, you know, of, of meeting and working collaboratively uh, with incredible, powerful women that run the world from different levels. And um, when I first started out, it was very impressive. I was almost like, you know, because a lot of the time, women in politics, women in leadership, women at those, you know, levels of power, you as an, you know, as a young girl at the time, again, to your point, I'm still young, but as a younger woman at the time, and I think especially a woman coming from a small uh, country, uh, a lot of those of those figures seemed kind of unattainable in the sense that like I didn't know how to relate to them. You know, you see their 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 public persona, but you don't know you know, really who they are. And I think some of these women, um, and I and I do say some, <laughs> I won't lie that I've been disappointed by some, but I think the majority of the women I've met in those in those positions of power really are 
you know, motivated and committed to making change happen. A lot of them, um, you know, have been in this in this in this fight for years. And, you know, at the time for them, it was even harder than it is now for women in, 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 in power and women in leadership. You know, it was a it was a completely different ball game for them even to get in. So the commonalities that sort of join these women together, and I'm talking now not only in terms of the women heads of state or government or ministers, but also women in parliaments, because, you know, they all have these these amazing stories. And most of the time, sadly, it's about the barriers or, or you know, the, the blockages that they face in being effective and in, in, in joining politics, but also wanting to stay in politics. And some of the, those issues that a lot of the women I've met, um, you know, in our summits, in convenings, has been, for example, um, you know, gender-based discrimination that they face continuously, even as an established leader. These biases, these stereotypes that they face. Um, it's also internal party issues, as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, with political parties gatekeeping, but also tensions within a party. And sometimes you think like, oh, because this woman is in this party, then everything's rosy and they get along. But sometimes, you know, eternal strifes in parties um, is, is very hard to go against as a woman, especially if you're one of a few women in a political party. Also, the issue uh, that a lot of women can agree on is the lack of funding. 32% in our study for uh, women political careers, 32% of the women um, in parliaments that we surveyed said that, you know, most of their funding for campaigning comes from their private funds. And they're not, you know, they don't access funding as easily as some of their male counterparts. Also, uh, a big, big, and, and, and I don't think it's shocking, but uh, the numbers were, were very sort of, wow, humbling, is that 85% of the women that we surveyed in the women political career had experienced some sort of harassment, abuse, violence, and more than one in 10 have suffered physical violence as a woman in politics. Um, which to me is just unacceptable. And it's just shocking that, you know, you're a woman in politics and, and you face that kind of, of abuse and harassment. Another key um, sort of connecting fiber was also the, the aspect of balancing family and caring with a political career. So a lot of the women, you know, they experience this sort of loss of family time, having to give up being a mom, being a wife, being being a caretaker to be able to balance with what is an excessive workload as a politician. Um, and also the sort of loss of family privacy when a lot of the time, for example, when these women are, you know, confronted with online harassment or, or you know, these stereotypical um, attacks that they get, it's a lot of the time focused on their family and how they're, you know, abandoning their children or how... Uh, or how it's like suddenly like, oh, they went on holiday here. And it's it's a lot of this kind of giving up your 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 sanctuary of this of this privacy of your family life. And a lot of them, even um, you know, politicians, and I think recently in the news we've 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 read an account of the Deputy Prime Minister of the Netherlands, who's actually faced even sort of threatening, sort of violent threats against her family and members of her family. So that's unfortunately some of the of the aspects that actually bring these women together and some of these barriers that they all face in different intensities at whatever level of, of leadership they are in. Yeah. 
those are unfortunate data that I think women share. And as you, I, I, I see most cases right now that women are also stepping down from politics, as we saw in New Zealand. I also know in Slovakia, the president is stepping yeah. or like is not running for re-elections. And um, this has been a bit of an increase in trend recently, which is not surely a very hopeful one for, for our generation as well. No. Um, do you plan to run for politics yourself? Because <laughs> by listening all of this, and I, I have been myself told in Brussels so many times by those people who are striving for changes, and we surely are among those, that the best way to do this is in politics. I mean, it feels horrible to ask this question after everything you just shared in the previous part about sexual and gender-based violence and about harassment and about the fact that you need to give up sometimes your family and child time. But still, considering all of this, would you would you see yourself somewhere out there? To be quite honest, it is something that has sort of been been marinating in my mind and I'll share a, a personal anecdote so in in 2018 I was in I was in Rwanda for a um a convening and the guest of honor was uh the former president of Liberia Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and for those of you that don't know her I encourage you to get to know her. So she was the first uh, democratically elected president uh, of woman president of Africa, 2006 to 2018. And I remember at that time, I thought, my goodness, like for us, you know, coming from a, an African country, it was, you know, she broke the glass ceiling. And I remember being so young thinking, wow, like I, you know, women can be in politics, women can run run and, and, and manage a country. And Liberia at the time, what she inherited as a country was in shambles. And what was even more impressive was that when she finally became president, she was 66 or 67 years old. She was a grandma and she'd had, you know, had had a very humble start as a young woman, um, you know, just as a woman point blank. And she'd built up through this kind of like sheer determination and, you know, and of course her wit and her intelligence to then finally reaching that point. And I, in Rwanda, there was a moment where she was coming out of the, of the room and she just received this award for like, you know, outstanding inspirational leadership. And I so wanted to approach her and say hello and just tell her like, you know, I've, I watched you as a little girl. You inspired me to actually, you know, move away from my initial career path and look into, you know, being, being involved in politics and specifically women in politics. And she was, of course, as you can imagine, surrounded by everyone who wanted to like talk to her, take pictures. And she somehow like, I, I just put my hand up and I waved at her and her bodyguard who her whole security team, by the way, were women. Her chief of security was a woman and her security guy was like, sorry, like, you know, really gatekeeping her. And she just said, no, wait, she's a young woman. I want to I want to meet her. And that moment, like every I, I was in sheer disbelief. And in those two minutes, she was like, hello, my dear, where are you from? What is your story? And she probably, you know, out of the thousands of young girls that she she's met, she probably doesn't remember this. And I just remember saying to her, like, Madame, because that's what we call her in Africa. So Madame Sirleaf, like. I've watched you all my life. You are an inspiration and I want to one day be in politics. And she said to me, like, we need women like you. We need young African women like you who, 
who, who believe that they can do it. And she said, don't wait too long. And I said, what is the advice that you can give me? She was just like, my advice is to just get started. Wherever you are now, whatever, you, whatever point that you think you are, just, just go for it. Don't ask too many questions, just jump. And, I, and to this day, having someone like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf say that to me, just, you know, I can't just sit with that. And so at some point, I, I do anticipate running um, in some form of politics. Back in the Seychelles, we've never actually even had a candidate, like for presidential candidate in any of the parties being a woman. And the highest um, sort of level that women have in politics in the Seychelles is minister. So I, there is no one to really compare to like, oh, you know, this woman tried to run as a, a presidential candidate. There is none of that. So um, regardless of, of, of the issues that I've myself mentioned, I think it's important for women not to be discouraged. And I think, I, and I think like, you know, we also need to, to tap on the shoulders of the men to, to kind of be allies in that sense. And, 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 and we can't do it alone, but, and I, I really do think that if you want to be the change, you have to be the change. And of course, you don't have to be a political leader to effect change. But for me personally, and, you know, the impact that I think I could make back home, um, it's, it's not something that is a complete impossible scenario. I, I, I'm still figuring out the steps to that, but that would be the ultimate goal. And if Ellen Johnson Sirleaf could be president at 66 and I'm now only 34, I have time. <laughs> you surely do. Yeah. I mean, I have goosebumps from, from your story and from everything. And you should run. Yes. Like <laughs> if I had a chance, I would surely vote for you. And uh, I mean, j just uh, following up on that, because you started saying about coming back to your country and a bit about paying back in a way. And I know that you have had a dream project that was in the back of your mind or in the back of everything that you have been doing so far, which is connected to your country. Could you share a bit more uh, about the project and why did you decide to do it? And um yeah, for, for whoever, maybe we'll find some supporters and people who could join you and help you in that yes. endeavor. Yes, that would be great. And if anyone, you know, wants to help me on my political aspirations, I'm always open for <laughs> for that. But um, back to your question. Yes, uh, the personal dream, which um, I have and will be working on, um, is the setting up of a women's shelter in the Seychelles. Um, this, this actually, this idea stemmed from a personal experience with gender-based violence, um, and, um, living in Belgium at the time, it was just wonderful to know that there were places I could go to, um, services I could call upon. Um, and that made me think like, oh my goodness, you know, back in the Seychelles, like women and girls don't have this, like there is, there is nowhere to go. Um, if you need to escape those kind of, you know, situations. And for me, um, that's when I really started like looking into the issue because, you know, I'd been out of Seychelles for, for years. And so I, when I left at, at 18, 19, I had not even had that. I was still green and naive. I didn't have any of that in my mind about, you know, gender-based violence, even gender equality to be, to be fair, was sort of like a, not something that I consciously thought about. And so when, when, that experience happened to me 
and I was working, uh, started working with um, w- within this field, I looked into what was available and discovered that there was nothing available, that there was also no data. There was nowhere where I could actually find, you know, the real figures of what's happening, what is it, what is the statistics for sexual gender-based violence in the Seychelles. And to me, that was alarming because I did know growing up, I did know you would hear, you would, you, you know, you, you weren't a stranger to the fact that it was happening. So for me, it was like, why... Why is there no data? Why are there no services? What are happening to these women? And so um, the government, to be fair, hasn't really made it a priority until I would say the last five years. When um, I think in 2018, the EU, part of a three-year program that um they had with the government of Seychelles was specifically around how to tackle the issue of gender-based violence and specifically in terms of small island developing states. So in the African region. And um, I looked into that. The partnership ended um, about, yeah, in 2021. And the outcome of that was that some trainings were given um, to police force, to medical staff, to civil society um, uh, people in the sphere. And they set up what is called a temporary shelter. So for the three years where there was funding, there was a makeshift shelter for women in those situations. But it was also, I think, for a capacity of like 20 women. Um, and also there was no no room or no space for women and their children. And, you know, when women are escaping situations of, of violence, they're not going to leave their children behind. And in the Seychelles, which is very much a matriarchy, um, you know, women-headed um, families are often in more of a precarious situation economically as a single parent home, where, whereas, you know, if it's a, if it's a joint home or even a, a patriarchal sort of father-headed home, it's, it's, it's a different situation. And so for me, I felt that it was important to give this, um, this issue attention. I understand as well that, you know, from, from, from the government's point of view, um, budget is an issue. Um, and that's why, you know, it hasn't been a priority. And a lot of the times in developing countries, especially small developing countries, there are other priorities, you know, infrastructure, um, I, I, digital, um, all the basic amenities that, you know, for, for developing countries might be a given it's already accomplished for a lot of small island developing states it's it's in the process of and again you know if you add the issue of climate i think what the the, the government of seychelles has been very focused on has been okay how do we get international support and funding for combating climate change and so that's something that there is a very big space there and we need to actually, you know, address the issue of gender-based violence uh, within the, 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 the whole framework of creating um, a gen- a, an equal society where women have, you know, feel or are in- economically empowered um, to, 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 to be able to actually call ourselves a successful society 
Um, Seychelles still ranks number one in Africa in terms of um, economic activity, in terms of uh, GDP, in terms of, um, you know, the richest country, if you will, in Africa. But in terms of these social aspects, there's a lot to be done. And a lot of them are intersectional. So the the a lot of the findings through a lot of the conversations I've had with you know, local people and, and people in the civil society sphere is that the issue of gender-based violence is very much linked with the, what I would call an epidemic of, of drug use and alcohol substance abuse, which is, you know, there was a, a recent um, shocking BBC documentary about how Seychelles is number one per capita in the world for um, the most heroin addicts, which from a country that has a population of about 110,000 people, that's beyond troubling. And you could also see like the link with gender-based violence when you look at the numbers of teenage adolescent um, pregnancies. And so I think it's a, it's a comprehensive approach that's needed. It's, it's very much intersectional, but it needs to start somewhere. And from my experience, both personal and in terms of, uh, of you know, um, the networks or the, or the kind of expertise I can help tap in for the government or bring in, um, I've chosen to focus on that aspect. Nice, nice. I mean, not nice in terms of situation, but I think it also shows that, especially once you were given all the data and explanations, it, it just feels so overwhelming and you don't even know probably where to start, especially with the countries that are facing with so many things. And uh, I mean, I'm Ukrainian and in Ukraine, we also have right now a huge case with sexual and gender-based violence and we're still not there with, and it exacerbated even more with war. And at the same time, sexual and gender-based violence is not the priority when the country is at war. And yet it's something that is a priority for so many women. And there are a lot of activists and people fighting there and everyone is trying to do their bit. So, yeah. And I mean, already, like in terms of, in terms of the data, as you mentioned, like, where do you start when you don't have updated, disaggregated data? So the, 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 the last piece of information I could find was a census done in 2016 um, by the special committee uh, that showed that four in 10 women experienced violence by intimate partners. But that was it. Like there was no follow through. There hasn't been an update since um, then. And the latest information I could find was in 2020, a domestic, which was part of, I think, this partnership that they had with the EU was, you know, trying to uh, put legislation because that's another uh, a big thing is that there is when there is no law enforcement, if there's no law for protection against gender based, sexual gender based violence, then, you know, it, it's a mute point. So in 2020, they the government or the parliament passed a, a domestic violence act, which officially finally criminalizes sexual, physical, verbal, emotional, economic, psychological abuse. And also, you know, wants to sort of strengthen the role of police, of judiciary and medical personnel in ensuring that victims are treated, um, you know, victim complaints are properly treated and that there is a, you know, like, in punities for it. But since then, that act has been 
you know, brought to parliament. It's just dormant there. And there is no sort of like sort of active action um, to, to put any real enforcement in it. So I think there's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done. There is goodwill because um, in the first ever Afrobarometer survey um, that happened last year, the citizens of Seychelles that were um, sort of surveyed, they identified gender-based violence as being a priority in terms of the um, the women's rights issues that they would like the government to tackle. That surpassed even, you know, the topic of uh, equal pay in workplace and even uh, equal participation of women in, in, in leadership. So it does show that there is, you know, citizens within the Seychelles believe that it's an issue and that it's an issue that needs to be taken seriously. And, and, and so I'm hoping that, you know, if I can help and and use my humble bits of experience and 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 um network to kind of bring solutions to the table that that will be something that the government will be open to and that we can sort of at least set up a framework to begin tackling this this very you know permanent and uh, uh sort of devastating issue thank you Thank you, Angela, for, for being you and for, for sharing with us your story. And it's been so, so nice. I had like goosebumps from time to time and a bit of tears in my eyes. I think that it, it is an amazing story. And like you say, you're only 34 and you already had so, so much and still so much ahead of you. I, I wish you all the best and so much luck if you need it, but I'm sure you won't need even luck because it, it just has to flow to you and it will come as it comes. But also for everyone listening out there, if you want to support Angela in the shelter idea or in her political career, do not hesitate to reach out. We will leave all the links to connect with you in the description to this podcast episode. Do you have the last message to the listeners? Is there something First of all, again, Sophia, thank you so much for giving me this platform to be able to share my story uh, and share my message. And, and you know, um, it's, it's important. It's important when women help other women. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that is a part of the message. If you're a woman, you know, wherever you are, whatever you think you, you, you can do, keep a door open for other women, help other women when you come. In the end, we're, you know, we're sisters in arms. And, and it's important that we have that, we see each other as, as sort of equals in this fight for equality and that we don't get bogged down in thinking of one another as competition. I think what I would say uh, to the listeners, and I, I would address also the, the, our younger listeners um, particularly, um, is that don't be afraid to fail and to fail again and to even restart. You know, um, don't be ruled by imposter syndrome. Don't compare your journey with somebody else's journey. Um, your worth is defined by you and you alone. And people's opinions of you are none of your business. And it's not your job to meet other people's expectations. Unless, as Mel Robbins would say, you're getting paid to do so. 
<laughs> and I'd also say in a world where we're constantly, you know, ruled by the idea of being constantly productive and useful all the time, that overworking is not a virtue. Um, it's okay to take a to take time off. It's okay, again, if you have the privilege to take time off, then do that. Rest, reevaluate, and most importantly, ask for help. Ask for help and 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 don't be afraid to knock on the doors that seem unattainable. Um, that would be, yeah, some of the of the of the key things that I've discovered uh, through this whole you know journey that is life. I'm sure there's much more that I will discover, and um, I hope I hope if I inspire one person, if I can you know create change for one person, then then my work is as a human being is 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 done, and and I think that's what we need to be aspiring to, not not necessarily the big the big goals but also the small things that we can do and and to to remember to always lead with kindness i think to always you know treat others like you would like to be treated it's uh, it sounds cheesy but i i promise you it's 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 a philosophy that will be so beneficial in the long run because you really get what you put out in the world and and i wouldn't be where i am now if you know i hadn't lived by that philosophy so that's just my two cents. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. And just to be sure, the door of yours, I assume, and mine are very much open for any, any messages, feedback, stories, if you want to share. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. That was it for this episode. Now we would love to hear from you. Let us know who should be our next guest. Maybe it's you. To get engaged, go to our website, buona.international, where you will find a box to share with us your ideas and requests regarding next episodes. Also, subscribe to our monthly newsletter and follow us on social media. Talk soon! <music>